Let's pray. And we're going to explore how to doubt better. Father, I pray that you would speak to us now. God, we look to you. We invite you by your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds. Do what no man could do. Do what no human wisdom could do. Do what only you can do and do it in the hearts of those who least expect it here today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at doubt and so far we've seen that doubt is a natural human response. In fact, I think it is built by God into every human being. I think it was a failure to doubt that got mankind into all the problems that we're now in. Can you imagine if the serpent came to Adam in the Garden of Eden and made those claims that he made to Adam and Adam said, oh, doubt that. <laughs> this would be a completely different situation, wouldn't it? If he had used his God-given ability to doubt. We've drawn the distinction between doubt and cynicism and doubt is, as I said, I think it is a, a divinely built quality in every human being that says we, we want the truth. That's what doubt is. Doubt says, I want the truth. I don't want to give my life to something that's either wrong, half true, nearly true, not even close to being true, or false, just plain false. We want, as human beings, we are created in the image of a God who not only loves truth, not only only ever delivers truth, but he himself is truth. And we're created in that, that image of God. And as a result of that, whenever we hear certain claims, there is something within us that most naturally says, I will only believe this if I have good reason to believe it. Of course, when a child is brought up in a home, their parents tell them certain things. And on that basis, the child has good reason to believe it because hopefully parents are truth tellers. And, and a credible witness is a good reason to believe a claim, especially if that claim is made by millions upon millions of people. And we saw in our session last time, when it comes to belief in God, some people doubt that there is even a God. And really, they, they have to do that despite the evidence, even though they claim there is no evidence. And we've, we've seen... And if you go to findingtruthmatters.org, you'll find a transcript of that message about I doubt God. And you'll see five really good reasons why the God of the Bible does exist. He is real and the claims that are made in the Bible are true. And that brings us today to this. I doubt the Bible. I doubt the Bible. So as we're looking at doubt, I, I'm, I'm mindful. Someone has said this. What, what if students had written the Bible? Not God, students. This is possibly how it would have panned out. Instead of creating the world in six days and resting on the seventh, students would have put it off until the night before it was due <laughs> and then pulled an all-nighter. <laughs> uh, if students had written the Bible, the last supper would not have been gotten to that night. It would have been eaten cold the next morning. Um, the Ten Commandments would actually only be five, but they'd be double-spaced and written in large font. <laughs> um, a new edition would be published every two years in order to limit reselling. Um, if you've ever bought a textbook, you know how much they are and you know how that can hurt. Forbidden fruit would have been eaten because it wasn't cafeteria food.
Obviously, no one's ever eaten at a university cafeteria. Paul's letter to the Romans would become Paul's email to abuse at romans.gov. The reason Cain killed Abel, they were roommates. Again, if you haven't got a university dorm experience, this probably doesn't mean anything to you. reason why Moses and followers walked in the desert for 40 years, they didn't want to ask directions and look like first-year university students. A collector, here's another one. I'm a collector of rare books. Whenever I go into a second-hand bookstore, I am on the prowl. I am looking, I don't care um, who, who it is, as long as it's by F.W. Borum, I'm going to get it. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm acutely aware of, of uh, some of those books that he refers to. And I'm, um, I found one the other day by W.Y. Fullerton, who's considered one of the greatest preachers of, um, of the Christian era. And it was a very, very rare book. Now, if anyone's ever heard of John Gutenberg, he's the guy... No, my wife hasn't. (laughs) John Gutenberg, darling, was the one who invented the printing press. And the first thing he printed was the Bible, just by the way. Okay. So here we go. A a collector of rare books ran into an acquaintance who told him he'd just thrown away an old Bible that he found in a dusty old box. He happened to mention that it was written by, that it was put together by John Guten, somebody or other, uh, who'd printed it. Not Gutenberg, gasped the collector. Yes, that's it. Gutenberg, you idiot! You've thrown away one of the first books ever printed. A copy recently sold at an auction for half a million dollars. Oh, I don't think this one would have got half a million dollars. Why is that? It had scribble marks all through it by somebody by the name of Martin Luther. (laughs) I doubt the Bible. Um... The Bible, just so we're clear on what we're talking about, back in the old days, we used to carry these things around and we used to, in in fact, in some churches, they could say, turn to page whatever, and everybody would turn to exactly the same passage in Scripture. That's not quite possible these days. With the variety of Bibles, we don't tend to use page numbers as much as references. But if you're wondering what I'm holding here, this is actually called a Bible. Perhaps for most of you, your Bible experience looks like an iPhone or an iPad or something like that, in which case page numbers is always page one. So uh, that's a Bible. We, we used to also have these things, little Gideon Bibles, and I'm going to refer to those in just a moment. The, so let's be clear what the Bible is. The Bible is a collection of 66, now that's important, divinely inspired and uniquely authoritative books, penned, not authored, penned by around 40 people over a period of a couple of thousand years, it reveals the identity of God, the nature of man, the universal problem which has eternal consequences and God's unfolding plan to redeem those who receive his grace and forgiveness. So that's the Bible. Now I say 66 books, that's important because when you, when you don't regard the Bible as divinely inspired fully, and when you don't regard the Bible as uniquely authoritative, you'll go and add other books to it, such as the Mormons do. They say it's one of four books uh, that is divinely inspired. 
such as Roman Catholics who add a whole section called the Apocrypha, which they claim is uh, of a sub sort of category to the Bible, but they put it in there anyway as if the Bible does not have unique authority. Of course, they believe the Pope and the College of Cardinals has as equal authority to the Bible. So if you diminish the Bible, you don't regard it limited to 66 books. But if you do take the Bible seriously, its own claims, you see that the 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation are divinely and uniquely inspired and uniquely authoritative. So that's what we're talking about. Now, even as I say that, there may be some of you going, yeah, as if. So I guess I've got two audiences today. Firstly, I want to, I want to speak to those people who do say that. They scoff, they doubt. And if you are doubting whether the Bible is really from God, divinely inspired, you're very welcome. In fact, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. You might be watching right now live on the internet somewhere. Thank you. Uh, you might be listening to this on radio or watching... Uh, one of our videos on Vimeo as, as this is taking place. Thank you for taking the time to do that. My second audience is probably most of you here and you go, look, I, I'm a Christian, I follow Christ, I, I, I get the Bible, I believe it. And I hope that by the time we're done, you, you will have a, a kind of a knuckle down, yeah, if I'm serious about this, there's some consequences to it. And somewhere in this, I want to give you something like six or seven reasons why you can know for sure that the Bible is divinely inspired. And if I was you, I would be taking my Bible, going to that very back section with, that the publishers very generously give. It's called the blank page. And seriously, I'll be writing down some of these things that I'm going to give you in a moment because I'm not going to put them on the screen because I want you to know what they are so that when somebody challenges you on the authority of the Bible, you can go... Hey, I've got seven really good reasons why I think the Bible is divinely inspired. You, you say I've got none. I reckon I've got seven. So that's just by the way. So there, there's my two audiences. So if you're here today and you're a skeptic or you're a doubter, then, then hopefully what I have to share with you will make some sense. That, that's my hope. And if you're a believer, I hope I strengthen your faith and confidence in the Bible. All right, so we've seen about the Word of God. Why? It is unique among the books of the world. It, I think it was Augustine who said around the 4th century AD, if there is a God and he has created mankind to have fellowship with, as the Bible claims, it would make sense that he has, at the very least, communicated with those he wants to have fellowship with. I mean, that just makes sense. I mean, that is the basis of fellowship. Uh, as a marriage counsellor and pre-marriage preparer, uh, one of the things that I know is essential for a good marriage is communication. And if you, if you are going to tell me, well, I believe God has created mankind for fellowship, but I don't believe he wants to communicate with mankind, then you have a completely different understanding of what a relationship looks like than I do. Because a relationship depth is measured by the ability you have to communicate with the other person. And you know if you have a breakdown in communication, you have a breakdown in your relationship. So I think it was Augustine, it could have been Athanasius, one of those guys back around that era, who said that it makes sense that if God created mankind for fellowship, that he would have provided some means of permanent communication, comma, the Bible. So I think that's quite a reasonable statement as well. All right, here's, if you are a sceptic, 
you may have used some of these reasons to justify your doubt about the Bible. The Bible's just a book. And by the way, these are not sort of, you know, what relevance has this got? These are things that have recently been uttered in the halls of our own parliament. And please remember that on March 15. (coughs) This is not some irrelevant discussion we're having today. Oh, that was nice, that was nice. We sort of soared with the angels in church this morning and walk out of here and your feet go thud on the ground as you land again. This is the stuff where we get dirt on our feet. This is the stuff that is uttered in, in political debate. This is uttered in the public arena. This stuff is bandied about on, on the ABC's Q&A, this question of whether the Bible is actually the Word of God. Now, here's some of the reasons that people give to doubt the Bible is divinely inspired. They would say something like this. I've heard this many times. It's just a book. It's just written by men. People just wrote it. That's it. That's... that's that's the doubt. I want you to notice none of these things are actually arguments to show the Bible is not divinely inspired. They're just claims. Secondly, the Bible is full of mistakes and errors. I, I, look, I get this one. If the Bible is full of mistakes and errors, you're right. It's not divinely inspired and we're just wasting our time. You're absolutely right. That's, the, that's another common thing that's used by sceptics. The Bible's full of contradictions. Um, the Bible just contradicts itself from cover to cover. Therefore, it can't be divinely inspired. And, and I would say, absolutely, if the Bible contradicts itself from cover to cover or even contains one or two major contradictions, you're absolutely right. The Bible cannot be divinely inspired. Absolutely agree. Totally agree with you. The Bible is full of myths. And legends. A myth is something that is completely fabricated. A legend is something that is embellished. It's just, it, it was true, but then it got so exaggerated. You know, like the day, if you're into football, Gary Ablett kicked a goal from the most impossible angle. He kicked it, the, the angle was so impossible, the football got stuck between the goalposts. That's, uh, that's, funny, that's a cue to laugh, and it's legendary. Okay, let's just move on. Uh, Another criticism made of the Bible is that it is outdated, it's full of unenlightened, non-scientific, superstitious nonsense. Heard this one fairly recently, actually. The Bible is outdated, full of non-scientific superstitious nonsense normally when i hear that it's obvious i think the bible is challenging someone's lifestyle just by the way and the bible has been changed down through the ages from what it originally said how can we know that what we're reading today is actually what was written again i point out none of those things are actually arguments they're opinions they're just opinions Now, some people have tried to put some uh, argument into those opinions. Most notably, there was a recent um, uh, Wheaton College graduate. Wheaton College is one of the best Bible colleges in the world. Uh, And one of those graduates, uh, uh, Bart Ehrman, he 
claims that even though he graduated from there, that, that after he finished, he, he said that based on what he studied, he could no longer consider the Bible to be the divinely inspired word of God, abandoned Christianity and has gone on a crusade to talk people out of becoming Christians. He wrote a book called Telling Lies for Jesus in which he claims there are some 7,000 errors that he's found in the Bible. Now I'll come to that in a moment because that, that claim, if you can think about it and I'll, I want to help you to think about that claim. So let, let's, let's deal with this first objection. The, the Bible actually claims to be without error, does it? Yeah, it, it does. The Bible actually does make this claim. The word of the Lord is perfect. Uh, we'll see that in a moment. Uh, that's in the Psalms. But here's, here's the, a New Testament statement where it says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now someone who's astute may go, hang on Andrew, that, that's Second Timothy before the New Testament was completed. Surely that speaks of the Old Testament. And I would say, yeah, at least it does. Absolutely, at least it does. No problem. But you know, the New Testament actually describes the account of the life of Jesus, which we call the Gospels, as Scripture. It actually describes the writings of the Apostle Paul, including that verse. In 1 Peter, he refers to this as Scripture. So the New Testament, before it's completed is already asserting itself as scripture equal to the Old Testament. And it says all of it, all of it is breathed on by God. In other words, divinely inspired. Big claim. Big claim. Now, we, we take another one. Psalm 18 verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. I think we sang this this morning. The word of the Lord, scripture, proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord, other translations have, is perfect. You read Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. It's about the word of God. It makes some staggering claims about the Bible. How can a young man keep his way pure? Is half the verse. The next half of the verse says this. By taking the word of God, by reading it and putting it in his heart. Really? There's not another book on the planet where you could read it and buttress yourself from sin. That's a big claim. I think the biggest claim about scripture's authority comes from the lips of Jesus. Now, this is what I've discovered. Most people don't have a problem with anything Jesus said, which is really surprising because most people don't know what Jesus said, which I see a problem with those two statements. But here's what Jesus said. The word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. So when Jesus is saying this, there was already that recognition of the 39 books of the Old Testament, including, if there's anyone listening from government, the book of Leviticus. It's just by the way. So, all scripture is breathed on by God 
The Psalms declare that the that scripture is perfect and true and Jesus said it came from God and it cannot be broken. And that, that's just one of the things he said about scripture. So the Bible does claim to be without error. That's true. That is the Bible's claim. Okay, so the doubter says the Bible is full of contradictions. For example, we could take one, and for the sake of time, I'll, I'll just refer to it rather than cite it. But in Second uh, Samuel, toward the end of Second Samuel, David takes a census and numbers the people. And it says this, And God moved David to number the people. Then we go into First Chronicles. I think from memory it's about chapter 21, somewhere in there. And it accounts the same episode, but it says this, And Satan moved David to number the people. And I had a Muslim use this to say, See, your Bible is full of contradictions. Well, what was it? Because that does sound like a contradiction, doesn't it? It does sound like an apparent contradiction. Was it God or was it Satan? And for the sake of time, 1st, 2nd Samuel was written hundreds of years before the account was written in 1st Chronicles. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, God is attributed with utter supreme, sovereign control of every detail in the universe. By the time Israel, Judah, has gone off to Babylon and been exposed to another way of looking at the world, a world in which that culture was aware that there was a Satan, which Hebrews were aware of, they just didn't think about it too much. They came back and said, this is how the sovereign God got David to number the people. He used Satan to do it. Now, that's not a contradiction, that's more detail. And you might think, hang on a minute, I thought God and Satan were kind of yin and yang and opposed to each other and they don't help each other out. Well, this is, this, this is a real challenge then, isn't it, to our understanding of God's sovereignty, his supreme power, his ability to use any circumstance for his glory. And I hope that you get what the Bible's trying to tell us here. You'll find another episode in Scripture that's very similar to this, where, where I think it was, um, it was Amaziah gets a, a vision of God saying to the host of heaven, who shall go and put a lying word in the mouth of the prophets of Baal? And a demon steps forward and says, I'll do it. And God permits the demon to go and do it. And you think, oh... There's no contradiction there. That's pretty plain. And it's the same idea as this apparent contradiction before. God can use the devil for his glory. Here's the, here's the big picture of this one. Who was it who orchestrated the death of Jesus Christ? <laughs> it was God, wasn't it? It was God. And who did God use to do it? The devil. He entered into Judas's heart. He, he moved, it says, Pilate and Herod. And so it, this is a, a picture of God's greatness. It's not a contradiction. You might 
concede that one and go, well, what about those accounts in the Gospels where it says there was one man in the graveyard and the other Gospel says, no, there were two men in the graveyard. Well, I've got a... Here's again, we've got a big picture and then we've got detail. Because I'll tell you this, if there were two men in the cemetery, the graveyard, there was one man. Does that make sense? So you've got a big picture, then you've got detail. And just because an extra detail is given doesn't contradict the previous big picture. So these apparent contradictions, when you actually look at them, they're, they're, they're relatively easy to, to see that they're not contradictions at all. Some people might point to, well, what about how do you account for the different names of different places? And the name, you know, like is it the Sea of Tiberias or is it the, the Sea of Galilee? Well, yes. It was referred to as both. It's not a contradiction. It's the same stretch of water. We went and saw a, a movie this week. Not going to tell you what it was called, since Russell won't. I won't either. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what it was called, but it was about a guy by the name of John Ryan. No, I have to tell you what it was called, because the movie was called... Jack Ryan. And you go, oh, there's a contradiction. I'm not going to watch that movie. It's full of contradictions. I mean, you, you, I can give you lots of other reasons not to go and watch the movie, but that's probably not one of them. <laughs> the point is, just because he's the, a lot of people by the name of John are known by Jack. I mean, how often has someone called you Shorty, Tony? More than you care to count, I'm guessing. <laughs> Who loves growing up as a redhead, being called Bluey? Just because different names are assigned to people and someone says, oh, Shorty was in the front row at Lagana that day. No, it wasn't. It was Tony Ball. See, contradiction. No, it's not a contradiction. And this, this sort of thing. So those, con those sorts of contradictions are easily accounted for. What about myths and legends? Well, a myth is something, as I said before, no foundation in truth, and a legend is something where the truth is embellished. So many of these things, such as the, the destruction of Jericho, where the walls fell down, many of those things were considered to be mere legend or perhaps at worst myth. And, and what we find is, over time, archaeologists begin to discover things that seem to align with many of these things in Scripture. Now, there are some things that sound, here's the word, and we don't use the word uh, uh, properly today, but I'll, I'll try and use it properly now. Some things sound fantastic. Fantastic actually comes from the word fantasy. Like, for example... Jonah being swallowed by a great fish and being in the belly of that fish for three days. It sounds fantastic. There's, there's good reasons to believe it's true, but can we demonstrate, do we have a photo, an x-ray, an ultrasound of Jonah in the, the belly of a great fish? No, we don't. Can we absolutely prove that that happened? No, we can't, but there is circumstantial evidence that points to it actually happening. So when we talk about myths and legends, I, I think of the, the walls of Jericho. In 1901, Professor Gleek, G-L-U-K, -L -U 
E.C.K. from the Jerusalem University was out excavating near the old ruins of Jericho and he found walls that were completely fallen outward. He was so astounded at what he found because it aligned with this thing that was for centuries considered to be just a myth or at best a legend. He made those on his team sign stat decks that they too could verify that this is what they found. And over and over we find archaeological support for this. People claim, well, there was no Israel in Egypt at the time of Ramses II. And now we're finding evidence that there was and there were different Ramses names for Pharaoh and all this sort of thing. And so all of these things are proven to be, uh, these, these uh, claims against the Bible are found to be without foundation. And the Bible's claims of history and geography are being found to be true by archaeology. So how about this one? The Bible's claim, uh, the doubter's claim, is that the Bible is outdated and full of nonsense. Now this is an interesting one because we, we, we look at accounts in Scripture and think, well, it can't be scientific because the Bible's science is just plain wrong. Therefore, the Bible's not true. Or some people will do this. Well, the Bible's plain statements don't align with the best of science, therefore the Bible's just poetry. Well, claims like this now are becoming less and less used as we discover, for example, Genesis 1 talks about the days of creation. I used to think, in a wooden literal sense, they were 24-hour consecutive days. I, I can see now from Scripture that that is next to impossible. And then if you, once you do that, you align that with science and you realise the unfolding of the days of creation match the fossil record that we have perfectly, including day five. Day five of the account in Scripture is when God made land animals. So day four, there was insects and there was little things. Day five, the great sea creatures and land animals. Bang, a crowded day five. You know, we, we have this thing now in the fossil record that's widely... Um, been validated several places around the earth called the Cambrian Explosion. What we have in the fossil record is microbial life, then the next layer is small life, then bang! Land animals and great sea creatures. Now Charles Darwin knew about this and he couldn't explain it. He just assumed it was a one-off fossil find and that eventually enough fossil evidence would be found to show the, the gradual development of his tree of life and his theory would be validated. And he actually wrote about this thing called the Cambrian Explosion and said, look, it does present an insurmountable problem to my theory. Well, what's happened since 1870 is that we found more and more sites in Canada, I think even in Australia, and particularly in China, where this account of the fossil record is so clear that we go from da-da-da-da-da, bang! It's actually called the Cambrian Explosion of Life. So these things that are written in Genesis 1, first chapter of the Bible, that were considered to be non-scientific, outdated nonsense, are taking on a strange credibility now. Added to this, I could have brought it out, added to this is in the book of Job. The book of Job is the oldest book of the Bible, probably written some... 3 to 4,000 BC. And in the book of Job, right near the end, 
God asks Job 66 questions. Of those 66 questions, which for thousands of years, we just thought they're just poetic questions. Then we began to make certain discoveries in the 20th century and early 21st century, and Bible scholars who understood the science went back and had a look at these things in the book of Job and realised this isn't poetry. It's written poetically, but it is hardcore astrophysics. And you might think, what, Pastor, what on earth are you talking about? Well, let me give you an example. Of the 66 questions that God asks Job, today we can answer nine of them. And we can only answer the ninth about two years ago. Some of the questions go like this. Job, do you know where I hide the darkness? And you think, oh, it's just God being poetic. Now, scientists will tell us that 90% of the universe is this stuff called dark matter. It's actually an invisible energy. It's called darkness. And we know it's there because we can see its effect. And Albert Einstein knew it's there. And if you can imagine a great big trampoline, a rubber trampoline mat, huge, and you put a bowling ball right in the middle of it and you roll a tennis ball around there and imagine you can't see the bowling ball and you roll a tennis ball and you notice as soon as that ball, a tennis ball gets near the great big bowling ball, it goes, woo, like this. And that's how the... That's how orbits are explained. There is something, there is a fabric to the universe called dark matter and God asked that question of Job some 4,000 BC. And it's only in the last 20 or 30 years that we've actually figured out there is this stuff. So I'd be very careful as a sceptic making this claim that the Bible is outdated nonsense. How about this one? The Bible has changed over time. <coughs> Have you ever seen, ever seen, because I don't think many have read it, Homer's Odyssey? And I don't mean The Simpsons. It's a, it's a book that was written around 500, 600 BC-ish or so, probably four to three, four, five hundred BC, and it's a Greek epic, a Greek epic. It's where we get, um, who's it, um, Medusa, the snaky woman, and and we, the goose that laid the golden egg, and all these expressions of speech come from that story, the, um, the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, the Iliad. And so we have this, this ancient story. It's very well established. No one, no one seriously challenges that it's authentic, that Homer, some bloke who lived in hundreds of, hundreds of years BC, actually wrote this thing. But you know, the oldest copy we have dates back to about 1000 AD, and we have one of them. And no one questions its authenticity, that it, that it was a faithful record, been passed down for you know, 1,600 years, and we've got one copy of it. Middle Ages, early middle, uh, middle, middle Ages, one copy. Did you know that we have so many copies near original, near original of the New Testament, just the New Testament, near original, that if we were to stack them up here, we'd have to take a hole out in the roof if we were to stack them up, we've got one copy about that thick of Homer's Odyssey. It would be about that thick. You know, just put it on the ground. There it is. Pages of manuscript. There it is. If we were to stack what we have near original copies of the New Testament, our stack would be about 1.6 kilometres high. 
1.6 kilometres high. We have nearly 5,900 copies of near original New Testament documents. Dating back to second, third, we're now finding uh, fragments that date back to the first century AD. Now here's the thing, I, want to, I, I mentioned before when Bart Ehrman says that there's some 7,000 errors in the New Testament and we know them to be errors. I want you to think about this. How do you know them to be errors unless you know what the real thing looks like? And how can you know what the real thing looks like? Well, this is quite easy. You know, you, you've got 20 copies that all say Lusante and you've got one copy that says Lusante. You have to go, well, that bloke probably made a mistake. And Bart Ehrman goes, aha, there's one error. And he does that seven, six, seven thousand times. Spelling mistakes, slight scribal error. How do we know that the Bible we have today dates back as close to the original as possible? We can. We can verify it by using a thing called literary criticism. We can date it back and we can find. And that's, how Bart, that's exactly what Bart Ehrman, when he makes the criticism, has done. He's actually, he, by making the claim, he's actually stating an answer to his very claim. We know what the Bible originally said, and we do. And what we have in English Bibles today is pretty close. It's pretty good to the original. All right. Um, I, I could talk about the Old Testament because for years people thought the Old Testament was just made up and fabricated and a distortion. And then in 1948, a young shepherd boy in the hills of, of the Jordan Valley found a cave with these manuscripts in it. Anyone know what they're called today? The Dead Sea Scrolls. And originally they were f thought to be, you know... Um, hundreds of years AD, then, then, then there were accounts of things that were happening hundreds of years BC that were obviously eyewitness accounts. And then people realised, hang on a minute, these, this copy of Isaiah, Isaiah, for example, gives in chapter 53, gives 40 predictive prophecies of Christ. And he does that some 750 years before Jesus. 40 details in one chapter. You try guessing the weather tomorrow. That's one detail. Imagine doing 40 things about a particular person and everything he said was, was proven accurate to the point where most sceptics said Isaiah must have lived maybe one or two hundred years after Jesus. Then these scrolls were found and dated to two or three hundred BC containing almost a complete copy of the scroll of Isaiah plus other Bible books and suddenly the sceptics went very, very quiet on this because we, we were able to validate that, yep, the Old Testament record that we have today is exactly what was in existence hundreds, thousands of years BC. Okay, so has the Bible changed over time? No. So here's the home stretch. What are the evidences for the Bible's inspiration? This is where I said you're going to need to write some things down. Number one, the Bible repeatedly and consistently asserts its divine inspiration. The Bible repeatedly and consistently asserts its divine inspiration. You might think, well, so do the other holy books. No, they don't. Not even the, not even the Quran does. The Bible does. It's unique in that way. 
Secondly, although being penned by some 40 people over thousands of years on three continents, the Bible is without contradiction and in perfect agreement about God, man, history and the unfolding plan of redemption. That is amazing. Try getting six people at a dinner table to account the same detail that day in the same way. That's a challenge. Imagine getting 40 people on three different continents spread over 2,000 years to report on exactly the same thing in exactly the same way. That is amazing. Thirdly, the history and the geography of the Bible have been confirmed by archaeology. So some of these details, confirmed by archaeology. Fourthly, Bible prophecy. It, it is without doubt one of the most staggering prophecies in Scripture, the one I mentioned before, Isaiah 53. Forty details given of the life of Christ, the death of Christ, where he would be born, how he would live, how he would be killed, where he would be buried, and that he would rise again. Staggering. And it was fulfilled. How do you explain that? You could say, well, Jesus probably read it and he just tried to do it. How do you try to fulfill your own resurrection? How do you do that? That's not a rational response. Fifthly, I'm going to give you six. The statements of Christ about the Bible. He said scripture cannot be broken. He said the scriptures must be fulfilled. That's what Jesus said. So the statements of Christ. And then I want to give you this one. And it leads me to my conclusion. Human experience at putting the Bible's claims and promises to the test. I cannot begin to tell you how many times I have lived out 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. The number of times when I have been overwhelmed in life, I have just been paralysed because of circumstances and I have had to apply that verse. God, I need your help and I need it now. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Other scriptures like, and the peace of God which passes all understanding shall be granted to you. I have tested that over and over again. Human experience putting the Bible's claims to the test. The Bible is a unique book. It really is. This is one of Kim's first Bibles. It was given to her when we, shortly after we met. She was a student at Deakin University. When Kim and I first met, she was not a Christian. God was doing something in her life and she was given this Gideon's Bible. Uh, this, so this was given to her around about, you know, this is uh, September 1986. And we met just before then, I think, and got married in 88. This is what it says in, in her copy of the Gideon's Bible. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers. 
Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveller's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, the design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the mind, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life and will be opened at the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labour and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. This is my Gideon's Bible, which I used, to, I used before Steve Jobs was kind enough to invent the iPhone. And in this one, it has a slightly different take on it. Let's see if I can just get to that. In, in this one, it gives the explanation of why the Bible is uh, powerful. It says, it concludes with this, it is supernatural in origin, eternal in duration, divine in authorship, infallible in authority, inexhaustible in meaning, universal in readership, unique in revelation, personal in application, and powerful in effect. It will be given to you here in life, will be opened at the judgment, and it is established forever. Come to it with awe, read it with reverence, frequently, slowly, and prayerfully. And I say, Amen. Now here's, here's the deal I want to put to you. Are you a cynic when it comes to the Bible? Nothing I've said is going to change you, persuade you otherwise. Or are you a doubter who's had their doubts challenged? I think that, you know, a Bible prophecy, Jesus forecasting that, that 40 years after he was crucified, he said within a generation, 40 years, the temple would be destroyed brick upon brick. He was crucified in AD 30 and in AD 70, the temple was literally torn apart brick by brick. It is a staggering prophecy. And that was recorded and the New Testament itself was closed by 65 AD. The book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 21, would have been written around 65 AD and closed. And then the 27 books of the New Testament in circulation and people scoffed at the prophecy of Jesus in that generation that the temple would be destroyed. In AD 70, all scoffing ceased because it was fulfilled. The Bible is staggering. Are you a cynic or a doubter when it comes to the Bible? I hope I've given you reason to doubt your doubts about the Bible. And the best thing I can do is to ask you, would you like to read one? If you would, come and see me. If you don't have it as an app, come and see me. I'll get you a hard copy of the Bible. It'd be my pleasure to do that. And here's my final challenge. I said to you I had two audiences, and this is where I conclude. What if you are a follower of Christ? Because if you are... You are not just a follower of Christ. You are a follower of the God of the Bible. That's what you are. And if you are, 
My question to you is this. Are you? Are you? Are you following the God of the Bible? Or is the Bible a book that you haven't read for days or weeks and yet you still claim, I'm a follower of the God of the Bible? Now that might sound a bit heavy. Please take it in love because that's how it's meant to be. Seriously, it's meant to be a loving statement from a loving pastor who loves his church and I want you to fall in love with God and to do that you've got to fall in love with his word and it's like imagine saying you marry someone and you say you know I love you I told you on our wedding day I love you it's just that I can't stand being with you <laughs> doesn't make sense does it God you know I love you it's just that these love letters you've written to me I just, I, time there's stuff on TV see how that sounds so let's pray Father I want my heart to be so full of love for you that, Lord, people are more inspired by my life and my heart than, than hurt and offended by my words. God, please help us to be a people who live for you by living out your word. I pray, Lord Jesus, for those who are here today and perhaps they're sceptical that, Father, today they begin to doubt their doubts and that, Lord, they would see for the first time that the God of the Bible is the God who loves them, sent his son to die for them, has a plan for their life and that, Lord, if they would only utter one prayer, a prayer of invitation, their whole life could be turned around both now and for eternity. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.